Welcome to the Seek Wilderness Podcast, a platform for outdoor adventures of storytelling, for gaining basic knowledge of hunting, fishing, and woodsmanship, a place to find inspiration to go do epic stuff this week. Seek Wilderness. All right, we're live. Welcome back, everybody. Appreciate you tuning in. Um, Todd and I are here. We are excited to uh, present this episode. This is an incredible conversation we had uh, with Dr. Ashby. And real quick on the upfront portion of this, I mentioned, and you'll hear it, that um, he has uh, shot over 150 animals. Well, that, and I didn't say this during the actual conversation, but that was within a one-month period. So in all, he's put a study into finding uh, an arrow setup that does the best penetration. And that study's been happening over a 27-year period with over 5,000 test shots. He's shot at 627 big game animals and did not recover four out of the 627. So I share that with you up front because I want you guys to be engaged and listen to this. Whether you have a belief in heavy arrows or not, go into this with an open mind. Um, and Todd, I don't know if you want to add anything else, but uh, I believe you yeah, did. There, was, <laughs> there was some eye-opening stuff, man, um, mm-hmm. talking to him about this. I mean, you can see how he came up with his 12 steps, his 12 factors, and the importance um, of each one of those steps and right. how, how they fall in line um, to, to think about 650 different animals um, <laughs> and, and only four of them weren't found. I mean, um, yeah. for, for some reason, I really believe Dr. Ashby. I don't believe every single person that's ever told me that. Um, the, the fact that he self-funded, um, the study throughout this time, all the equipment that they use, everything he self-funded it, trying to keep himself away from any sponsors or anything like that that would that would throw the study off. And that that's some, there's some value there. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Why he's not being mentioned with Fred Bear and and some of the other forefathers of our sport is unreal. This guy basically single-handedly shot and studied his way to being able to have bull hunting in the wild countries of Africa. Yeah. Yep. Legally could not hunt there until he went over there and proved to these countries and helped them prove that animals can be killed by by arrows, with, with a bow and arrow. I mean, why we're not talking about this guy as, some, as a living a forefather of our sport is well, unfathomable. It is. You know, it we is. have an opportunity with with a man that that is still alive and and striving. You know, doing well. That is someone that did something that important for our sport. Yeah, yeah. And I obviously, you know, through through Troy, I knew a little bit about Doctor Ashby, and uh, for me, this was um, incredibly eye opening, um, incredibly telling. And if you just looked at it like a court of law, like proving a case, hands down, this is the way that you should go, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, um, when you take a look, I mean, Dr. Ashby is somebody that I've not not necessarily followed, but I've known of Dr. Ashby for decades. You you know what I mean? If you've been in bow hunting and, you know, speak to more than just the people, you know, 
around you, you know, uh, locally, um, you, you'll know, you'll have heard of Dr. Ashby, how important yeah. he was to the sport. I didn't know that until we, we actually spoke with him. You, you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. When, you, when you talk about these arrows, I mean, okay, so we do not need this kind of, of uh, arrow setup for whitetails. However, why you would not want them to take some of the 12 factors and build them into your arrows to, to, for, uh, you know, a, a case where you do hit a heavy bone, can't fathom why anybody, now that you know it, right, would care to, to not take some of those factors in when you're doing when you're building your arrow. I, I, I don't, to me, for speed, you know what I mean? Just just for speed, that's it. I mean, we're talking about whitetails. We're talking about thirty yards and in, maybe forty yards and in. Yeah. Well, and he and he, he isn't, he, even, a, isn't even a factor. Yeah, and he he even addresses the, the speed thing throughout this, and that goes back to why we titled the the last one with Troy zero is a real number because mm-hmm. in, in my mind there's there's zero reasons not not to do this. You know what I'm saying? It, it makes so much sense, especially for people like us that, that aren't full-time hunters that need to maximize everything we can because our time is limited in the deer woods. And when the rubber meets the road and we have that opportunity to take an animal, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I want everything in my favor. It just gives me the confidence um, to, to take the shot that, that I need to take and to recover the animal. But I completely, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's not foolproof. I mean, I, I, I did lose an animal last year, but, you know, um, I've take, taken an awful lot with this setup, and I am I am a believer for sure. I'm still not – there's certain shots I'm not taking with my recurve. You know what I mean? This doesn't right. make it so I can take any shot that I want. That's not what this is about. And it's not about, like – you hear so many critics on things. Oh, you're not shooting through the the socket and this and that. And okay, all right. So let's just say that you can't shoot through the socket. You can shoot through the rest of the bones, and the socket is the only limiting factor for you. I mean, that's pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're not doing that with with a 400 green arrow. You're not. You're not shooting through half the bones in the body. Yeah, and the whole the whole thing is is that there there are. There are guys and, and, and gals out there that are going to continue to go with the speed, and that's that's fine. But this conversation does get into a lot of bones, and here's the reason why: is because anytime you release an arrow, that animal is moving, and it doesn't yep. really matter how fast the arrow goes, the animal is still going to move. So that's why this. I don't. I don't want to say too much more because it's a great conversation, and we have an opportunity to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So, um, we're we're doing this all all in one shot. It's about an hour and a half conversation, and at the end, uh, we're going to do do a quick quick wrap up. Unless you have anything else, uh, we we can jump into this. No, uh, let's jump into it. Let's let's jump into it. Let's get it out there for everybody. Um, and let's just learn something about Dr. Ed Ashby. He's he's a pretty cool dude. Awesome. All right, here we go. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the show. I am uh, excited. Todd and I are so very excited and honored to uh, have this next guest on. He's he's taken over 150 animals, uh, all including uh, rhinos, elephants, buffaloes, uh, all with a bow, I believe, and some of them with a, an arrow weight of uh, 1,200 
plus grains. Uh, he's also the vice president of the Ashby Bow Hunting Foundation. Here with us on the phone from you live in Texas, right, Doctor Ashby? In Texas. Well, we appreciate you uh, jumping on the call with us uh, this evening. Really appreciate it. Nah, my yeah. pleasure. So, so Doctor Ashby, uh, we definitely want to talk about the twelve factors of, of arrow penetration. Um, and uh, I, I may mention when you and I talked last that Troy Troy told us to ask you about the AK forty seven story. Uh, so we we do want to cover that, but <laughs> I can't even remember what it was. You have to dig my memory. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll, we we can we can we can do that for sure. Um, yeah. But what what I was curious about was what what were you doing or what did you do like before this this arrow testing journey started? Uh, well, I'd been bow hunting for twenty five. A little over 25 years. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I really got interested in it for my own sake. Uh, you know, I started out with, with longbows, recurves, you know, traditional archery. Uh, the compound didn't come along till I guess, the first Allen compound I saw was somewhere in the 60s, early 60s. And uh, I, I didn't get into those till I guess it was uh, about 1980. That I finally decided, oh, okay, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take up a compound. So, I got me a Darton compound, and you know, I read all the stuff I could find in the magazines. And so I got set up with some multi-blade replaceable blade arrows, light arrows, you know, as fast as we'd get them, which was probably 250, 260 feet per second tops then, mm-hmm. and. uh, uh Thought, okay, you know, I I got to target, man. I could shoot the heck out of that thing. I thought, man, this, this is going to be great. Well, that year I lost, hit and lost four deer. Okay. And I had never done that before. And uh, I never come even close to that. And so I knew something was wrong. And I came from a background of, uh, my dad was the NRA rifle instructor and you know, we we hand loaded. We talked ballistics all the time. It was just a common dinner table topic to talk about ballistics, particularly terminal ballistics. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had a great interest in that. And I was used to being able to okay, if I got a question about something, well, you know, let's let's don't read the magazine articles. Let's go back and look at you know real research on it. So you know, with a gun, you go back and look at you know people like Chamberlain's work post-World War II and, uh, you know, get some definitive answers. And I got to looking, and there was absolutely nothing. Not a word. Nobody ever researched anything. So I started out just keeping some records uh, for myself. And uh, then the fate just stepped in. I I had written over to uh, uh, South Africa to... to, uh, uh, Natal province uh, to ask about hunting a rhino four or five years before. And, uh, and of course, the, question, the answer came back that, you know, it's not legal. We, we don't have hunting for any of the big animals with bow and arrow. And uh, a few years later, they decided they wanted to look at, at how viable bow hunting would be. Uh, hmm. And 
they were having a meeting over there, sitting around the table, and talking about one of the topics came up was how big an animal can you shoot? And somebody there at the table, and I think it was probably Spud Luddingham, I'm not sure, uh, said, hey, somebody wrote me you know, a few years ago asking, could he hunt a rhino with a bow and arrow? You know, I might still have his letter. He went and dug in his files, and uh, sure enough, found my letter. <laughs> and they called me with the emails didn't exist then. Right. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even have to think about it. You bet I wanted to go. And uh, so I went over to uh, do the rhino hunt. And, and while I was there, they got to talk to me about the research they were doing. Uh to look at the viability of bow hunting and asked if I wanted to uh, come back the next year that they were going into Bacuzzi Park uh, where they had to cull several thousand animals each year just to keep the the animal population down to the carrying capacity of the uh, park. Right. Okay. And uh, said we're going to go in with bows first and shoot as many animals as we can and uh, would you like to come help with that? And that didn't take me any time to think about either. And uh, so he said, well, put together as much equipment as you can. So what we'd like you to look at is, uh, you know, the arrow setups and different broadheads and, and how they perform. And uh, so I, I think I had 32 different broadheads I came up with and uh, a whole range of different type arrow shafts different weight arrow shafts, you know, woods, aluminums, uh, even some some uh, genuine fiberglass, old Shakespeare, well, real fiberglass ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, so went over and uh, we did, the first thing we want to do was repeat the rhino. And so we did repeat the rhino, make sure it wasn't a fluke, you could do it. Uh, and then we went down to Macuzzi and... Uh, I shot uh, 154 animals in in the month down there. In a month? Wow. Yeah. And uh, what they wanted us to do was, and these were all hunted animals. These, these weren't set-up shots or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted us to, any time an animal was uh, close enough that we thought we could hit it, they wanted us to shoot it, regardless of the shot angle. Because okay. one of the things they wanted to look at were, Bad hits, you know how, how lethal okay. is the bad hit? Uh, what does it take to make it lethal? So forth. So you're you're actually doing a study for was it for the country? For the top, yeah, for for the tall parks board. Okay. Wow. And uh, so we we would shoot the animal, and we were backed up with a rifle if. Uh, if we had any question at all, or anybody had any question at all, the shooter, you know, the backup rifleman, uh, they they would put the animal down with a rifle with a hit remote from where the arrow was. And then we would uh, dissect the animal and, and collect all the data we could off of the, off of the shot and try to determine uh, if it would have been a lethal hit or not. And if we had any questions, they could tear the animal back in. They had a couple of veterinarians on staff, and they would dissect the animal, and they'd tell you okay. exactly what happened and whether it would have been lethal or not. Uh, so we collected all that data. 
while I was collecting that, they were looking at all sorts of other things, uh, uh, time to collapse of the animal, distance traveled, uh, how, uh, the stress on the animal that we shot, stress on the animals that were accompanying the animals we shot. So all sorts of things like that were going into it. And, uh, I came back with all the information data that I had and, and analyzed it all that had to be done by hand. I did have a massive Atari computer that had a, I think it was, might have been 512K memory. <laughs> and so there were no spreadsheets or anything, so it was all had to be done by hand. But anyway, I put all the data together on the terminal performance of the error setups. And mm-hmm. I sent that back over to them, and they put their whole report together and took it to the entire parts board. And uh, the, the parts board uh, uh, decided to legalize bow hunting in South Africa. And that was the very first affirmative bow hunting law anywhere in Africa. Before that, uh, anywhere that bow hunting was mentioned, anywhere in Africa, it was illegal. Uh, there were some places where there were no ways and means. It was silent. And, and some people did uh, were able to hunt in places like that. Uh, so some of the early hunting that was done there, uh, Howard Hill and Bob Swinehart, and, uh, Fred Bear, so there were several people that that uh, hunted some in Africa uh, mm-hmm. before that. But they had to go to those areas where the laws were just silent on bow hunting. I got you. And uh, once once they legalized bow hunting in uh, South Africa, it just kind of dominoed. Uh, yeah. You know, the surrounding so, states started, surrounding countries started uh, legalizing bow hunting. So, and, you, uh, so that really got legal bow hunting started off in Africa. So, yeah, so you, your trip, your equipment, your shooting, and all the information and my dollar. Provide, they didn't pay. And your dollar, oh, yeah. is the reason why bull hunting is allowed in Africa at from the, from that day on. That is amazing. That's right. That's, that's an amazing right. That's, legacy. That's and, amazing. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, by the time I got through with it, I had tons more questions. So I, I decided to just keep right on collecting data. Okay. And as I got more and more data, and I started to realize that, hey, you know, I need to try to get some of this out to the public, you know, so that, you know, people will know what's out there. And I made the decision way back then that uh, we were going to keep the testing independent. We, you know, I was going to put all the bill myself. I bought all the equipment, you know, everything that was ever tested. I didn't take any donations from industry, anything like that. I didn't want the the research to be tainted by the appearance that I was being biased anywhere. Yeah, and uh, I kept right on doing that, made several trips back to Africa. Uh, and then when I retired in uh, 94, I moved to Africa. And I spent uh, seven years over there uh, doing a little bit of work as a professional hunter occasionally, but mostly, you know, doing my own hunting and, and collecting data. And uh, then things fell apart in Africa. I was uh, based in Zimbabwe. And uh, right after 
the Zimbabwe Democracy Act was passed by the U.S. Congress. Mugabe kicked all the Americans out that didn't have uh, permanent residency. And uh, at the same time, confiscated everything we had there. And I got out of Africa with uh, my rifles, which I had to bring out, and uh, my binoculars and one change of clothes. And they they took everything else I had over there. And I had liquidated everything in the States except a library of books that I'd stored with with a friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I came back and uh, sort of regrouped and went down and spent seven years in uh, Australia, New Zealand, New Guinea, areas down there, uh, carrying on the study. I went up to okay. 2008. And uh, then I had a fall down in New Zealand and broke my back, and that ended my testing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, so, that is an amazing story. So when they took all your stuff, you had, and you said you liquidated everything back in the States before you went over. So basically they, I mean, obviously you had to right. back up, but a lot of what you took over there as far as that part of your financial situation, they just took it from you? Yeah, they just confiscated everything, yes. Wow. So, okay. you know, they took house property, vehicles, hunting kit, uh, all my equipment, everything. You know, I had reloading equipment over there. I had all sorts of hunting equipment. And uh, they just took everything. So in today's society, what we're going through in this country right now, and you've been to some of these other countries even where we're at right now uh, politically, our country is a pretty amazing country to, to not let people just come in and take whatever they want because there's a change of philosophy or something. Is that right, Doctor? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But you'd be surprised, and I, I never underestimate how fast things can change. Mm. Yeah. You know, when I, yeah. when I went over to Africa, I was expecting to be there the rest of my life. Yeah. And in the first first four years or so, everything was great. And then it started falling apart. Yeah, that's crazy. So I, I have a I have a question that just it just hit me. You mentioned in '84 that you retired. What what did you retire from? Uh, I spent part of my career in the Air Force. Then I changed over to the Public Health Service and worked out on the Indian reservations uh, for a number of years. And then I ran uh, a regional eye care program for the uh, Indian Health Service that covered seven states. And then my last four years, I uh, ran the eye care program nationwide for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Okay. That's okay. where it's not from. Yeah, okay. Well, we were both talking, and we were wondering what your, your doctorate was in. Now we know. <laughs> Eyeball. Eyeball. <laughs> yes, sir. But interesting. I mean, you, you, and, and you know, similar to other other folks we talked with with regards to, uh, you know, the heavy the heavy arrows or adult arrows, as Troy says, is that we we were we were on the on the path of looking for something that was far more effective than what we were doing. And you're you're just uh, another normal person, like. The majority of the hunters out there that was not satisfied with results and wanted to figure out a better way. That was it. And, and I was 
determined that I was going to to go out there and find what worked best, and then try to find out why it worked best. Uh-huh. You know, and under what situations it worked best. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, when when we got through with the the initial bit of testing, the testing that I did, which covered almost twenty seven years. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly how many, but I'm sure we're over 5,000 test shots wow. in the database. And then I kept a database of my hunted animals separate uh, so that I could make comparisons back. Am I seeing in real hunting what the data from the setup shots are telling me? And and, and can you explain what a setup shot is? Oh, well, you, you have, we would put put an animal down, uh, and then prop the animal up, and okay. you've got about a thirty minute work time. In real warm conditions, you might get another five or six minutes, but we cut it off at thirty minutes, so that you know mm-hmm. physiologic changes begin to occur that affect mm-hmm. the outcome of the shot. So we take all of the test shots within thirty minutes of of putting the animal down. And then yeah. we do dissections so look and see what happened, just like we did with the hunted animals in the tall study, and then try to determine, you know, would it have been a lethal hit, would it not have been a lethal hit, uh, and as well as looking at how the equipment performed, uh, you know, how well it held up, all, all of the factors that we could look at in the uh, in the performance. Yeah, and uh, then I then I kept my, like I said, my uh, hunted animals, and so I could compare back. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that last twenty five years I hunted, after I started keeping records, I had six hundred twenty seven big game animals, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, not counting small game stuff, uh, right? That were kills, and I had four. Non-recovered animals. Wow, <laughs> that's Amazing. crazy. That that right there in itself is those numbers are crazy good numbers, doctor. Well, a lot of you know some of it was careful management of the animals, but mm-hmm. most of it was I was constantly upgrading my equipment, my error system, mm-hmm. to what the the testing was telling me. Is the most effective system I could use. Right. So all along the way, I'm getting more and more and more effective equipment. Of course, I had made a big jump already after the tall study. Uh, we had some pretty good ideas of, you know, that there were error setups that definitely outperformed others. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's and that's how you began the the, the twelve error penetration factors. Yeah, those developed uh, through the years, and uh, actually, I think, I believe it was 2007 that I looked at it and thought, okay, I've got enough data now that we can come up with the factors that are important and rank them from most important to least important Mm -hmm. when we look at all possible hits. Right. Right. So, yeah, and this is something, and this this list, and I I think this will be a good segue into that, Todd. If you if you're good with that, but this yeah. list is is still. Um, well, let me ask you: Is it still a work in progress, like improvement 
Always looking. Well, we're still testing. We uh, uh, 2017, we formed the uh, Ashby Bullhunting Foundation, which yep. is a 501c3 nonprofit. It right. carries on just like I did. We don't take any donations from the archery industry. Uh, we're supported strictly by donations from bow hunters. And uh, we're carrying on the uh, the research. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of new equipment, and I've still got a lot of questions. Every time I finished a series of tests, I would end up with more questions. And we still have questions. Yeah, and so uh, there there'll be new stuff coming out probably, uh, probably about the first of September or, or sometime in September from uh, this the testing was done this year, which was okay. on uh, was a trip to Africa, some Cape Buffalo and stuff. Uh, Rob Nielsen, the the uh, president of foundation, went over and did that. But uh, last year's we didn't. We didn't video or anything. We just had the results and photographs and stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, we videoed this whole thing. Oh, nice. And uh, so we'll we'll have be putting out videos, too. But there's okay. just tons of more stuff to be done. And, you know, we're, we're collecting a lot more data now because there are new things. Uh, when I collected my data, I was collecting 100 and... 1819 I think it was data points off of each shot. Jeez. And now we're collecting a little over 250 data points off of each shot. That could have affected something if you were collecting the full 250 all the way back then, is what you're saying. You well, some of, some of what we've added is because of uh, new products. That okay. are available, okay. uh, you know, like uh, insert outserts and things like mm-hmm. that that were not there. New air shaft materials, uh, right. you know, that weren't there, uh, and of course, tons of new broadheads and things that. But uh, we had the broadhead specifications pretty well covered. But all these other things you have to add in. Plus, we're now looking at uh, uh, we have sharpness testers where we can. That were made specifically for the the foundation, uh, so it gives us uniform readings. So we can mm-hmm. test pre and post shot sharpness. Uh, so we're getting things like that. Uh, we have a Rockwell hardness tester where we can, you know, test the, the hardness on the blades and the variation between broadhead to broadhead. You know, the consistency of the products. Uh, so we have a lot of new equipment that we're using too. Uh, that, you know, I just didn't have the money for. I I literally spent, <laughs> I tried to figure it up when I was in Africa, and I figured at that point I'd spent about $300,000 wow. on equipment, not including travel for hunting or anything, just wow. on equipment. Hmm. Uh, it gets pretty expensive when you're buying everything out of your pocket. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. What's yeah. It, I mean, not the... <clears throat> I mean, I'm getting the sense that there, there is this, there's a specific reason as to why you you did it self funded, self supported, didn't take donations because you want this to stand, you want this data to stand on its own. I want this data. I don't want anybody to be able to look at it and say, oh, you know, we're getting support from somebody, so we're pushing their product. 
Right. right. This leaves us totally independent. As a matter of fact, we buy most of our test equipment uh, anonymously. Okay. You know, the manufacturers, we, we just go to an archery shop. And, of course, we're buying a huge amount of stuff. It can usually get a pretty good discount on the price, uh, buying in the quantities that we're buying. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, there's we're, we're just free to tell people exactly what we found. That's all we do. We go through yeah, this is where it fell. This is what we found. Yeah. Now, that's a, that's a really good place to be. It doesn't make us real popular with a lot of manufacturers. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that because, uh, like, and, and, and I think we should start getting into the, the, the 12 factors here, but in your nearly 30 years of data and testing and studying, have you ever stumbled across anything from the manufacturers that uh, is, could even touch the data that you're, you're coming to? There is no other data that we're aware of anywhere in the world. We have the only data from real animals. And that's all you can rely on. Uh, We've we've tested and tested with all these uh, artificial test media. Nothing gives you the results that you get from a real animal. Uh, Basically, when you're dealing with a homogeneous material, foam, metal, plywood, doesn't matter what it is, you're not dealing with the type of of things that you're going to be eating in an animal. An animal essentially has a combination of composite armor and reactive armor. He's got all these different layers that are intended to protect the body in mm-hmm. different ways that that work against you being able to penetrate the animal. And you get bones which have movable attachments so that when you hit a bone, the bone has to move, and then it has some flexion, and that flexion has to move before the air even starts to penetrate the bone. Yeah. So it's a reactive armor. So you're actually dealing with both composite and reactive armor when you shoot an animal. Right. So so much different when you're when you can put the testing to it and you... Just go a couple more layers into what's going on at a shot compared to, you know, tribal knowledge around a campfire and son, just shoot this. This is what it worked for grandpa and this, you know, that, to, to be able to put the facts to it and, and show people, you know, show actually what's going on there by just taking it a couple more steps farther than what you see with the naked eye. Well, the, uh, the, the biggest thing we found. When people shoot an animal and don't recover, 90% of the time they say, well, it was just a bad shot. Right. The testing doesn't bear that out. The number one overwhelming cause of a non-lethal hit is lack of sufficient penetration. Mm -hmm. And that's hands down. And, And, you know, it was known years and years ago, Howard Hill references it in, in Hunting the Hard Way, and uh, Fred Bear, in the article he did in the, I think it was the 1930s, in New Sylvan Archer, uh, same thing. He said, you know, what what's needed, you know, anything will kill when everything goes right. But what's mm-hmm. needed is something that will crash through when the going gets tough. So, right. you know, bow hunters have known this for a long time. Mm-hmm. But they, they, don't, they don't register with it. 
when you shoot an animal and don't recover it, you have no idea why that shot was not not fatal. Right. Unless you can examine the shot, you, you don't know. You don't know what happened. And right. so when we look at these factors, all of these factors are geared to increasing the penetration of an error. And what we found is incorporating these factors in, into an error, you can more than triple the penetration of the error. In other words, you can get 15 inches instead of 5 or 30 inches instead of 10. I mean, it's a significant uh, increase in penetration. That, that's awesome. And that's what all the factors are, are geared around. Let's 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 jump into that. Um, and, and these are these are listed in order of importance, right? Yeah, and they will switch once in a while. Some of the factors, uh, depending upon the shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, the number twelve factor, uh, which is uh, the heavy bone threshold, yep, it is not very important unless you get a heavy bone. But when you get a heavy bone, it jumps all the way up to the number three position. Okay. And the type of edge bevel, which is number 11, jumps all the way up to number four when you get a heavy bone. Okay. Uh, so that's where you get switches. Now, the first two factors are chiseled in stone. They never change. They are always one and two. And that, and that first factor is structural integrity. That structural integrity. It is the most important factor. Now, a lot of people say, no, no, you know, uh, shot placement or uh, perfect air of flight. If you have a perfectly flying air placed in the right place and it breaks on impact, nothing else matters. You've lost everything. It's, mean, it's right. meaningless. Yeah. It is meaningless. Your error must stay intact. So even a very, very tiny little tip man can cost you as much as 14% of your penetration. Wow. It's absolutely a must-have error design feature of every error. Okay. It makes sense. And today today we're getting some really good components compared to when you first start, well, especially with, with cedar arrows and, and uh, probably glue on uh, broadheads and stuff like that. Um, some of the things that we well, can do today. Well, surprisingly, yeah. glue on broadheads are are much stronger than any of the screw head designs. One of the great weaknesses of broadheads is the post, the screw in oh. post. Wow, that's good to know. And uh, you'll see that in some of the test results that come out from this year. Is that and, because still like a single bevel will still continue to bore? And on a screw, it could unscrew? Uh, well, it, it, it tends to, if it's a left-hand bevel, it yeah. tends to loosen up. Yeah, that's what, yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. But even when I did use screw-in, uh, screw-mounted broadheads, uh, I, I epoxied them in place. On my serious hunting errors, nothing comes apart. Okay. That makes sense. So, so I, I go all out for structural integrity. Okay. So structural integrity, and then with that, number two is it's perfect air flight. Yep. And perfect air flight is the enabler for all the factors that follow. It it gets the most 
source out of your era, the most energy out of your era, if you want to use the energy term, which is proper in uh, for an era in flight to the target or off the boat. Uh, it is what gives the juice to allow all the other factors to work at an optimal level, as good as they could possibly work. And poor flight squanders your air force. Now, with, without, even if you had every factor in place, without good air flight, you'll still have a poor performing air. However, if you ignore the other design features, what you end up with is a perfect flying error that's still going to perform poorly on some hits. So all these factors complement each other. Yeah, because, you know, so the next one is FOC, but FOC uh, plays a big role in, in aeroflight, right? It certainly does. Mm-hmm. The higher the FOC, the more stable a projectile in flight is. So the further you can get the center of gravity forward of the center of pressure of an object in flight, the the greater tendency it has to resist change in direction of flight. Right. So that's one of the big one of the big factors in the flight. And extreme FOC has some other factors too, because when you have the uh, center of gravity up towards the point, the forward lever arm from the center of gravity to the broadhead is shorter, and that makes mm-hmm. it stiffer, which gives it less flex when it impacts. When you that arrow is flying down range, and that arrow is always flying, all it changes is what it's flying through. So when it goes from air to a denser medium, like the animal the bone, the tissues, whatever. The front end slows down, and the back end wants to keep going forward, so you're going to get some flex. Just uh, the reverse of what you get when you shoot off your bow. And so you want to have that front portion as stiff as possible and the back portion as light as possible, because the lighter it is, when it does flex, it's going to come out of the flexion going to dampen the vibrations faster because it doesn't have much weight or much mass to keep it flexing. So in, in some of these re- recent videos, um, and I'm not sure if you watched them where, where they have Rocket Man on there, he talks about pitching y'all. And when that, yeah. arrow, when that arrow comes off the string, it's good at pitching y'all. But with a heavier, uh, or I'm saying a, a higher FOC number, it'll It'll um, it'll still continue, but not as much, and get it back on track faster. Faster, correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so Dr. Ashby, the F- FOC, what is your – I heard you use the term extreme um, FOC. Okay, well – What are yeah. your numbers? What, 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 yeah, what is it? What, well, what anything below 12% has always been called normal FOC. You know, look at the Eastern okay. data. And between 12 and 19 is high FOC, and that also is in the, the Eastern data, but that's uh, that's as far as they ever went with it. But I didn't find an increase in penetration that I could document, statistically significant documentation. 
until I reach 19%. Okay. And from 19%, it keeps going up, and it goes up at a greater rate for each percentage. In other words, the percent gain between 20 and 21 is less than the percent gain between 21 and 22 as a percent of the penetration. And, of course, when you're dealing with 21 to 22, that's a percentage increase of what you already had at 20 to 21. So it keeps compounding itself. Okay. And when I got to that, I, I called that extreme FOC. Yeah. Okay. And then 30% I called ultra-extreme FOC, and that's strictly because with the components that were commercially available, it was almost impossible to get 30%. Now, I had to have components made uh, to be able to pass 30% FOC. Hmm. But the, the when you get up above 25 to 26, somewhere in there, there the rate of gain of penetration is just enormous. It's absolutely amazing. And at 30% above, <laughs> it's hard to quantify. We're still trying to find ways to quantify it. But uh, we have we have a lot of young shooters and lady shooters that are shooting fairly lightweight, drawweight bows. You know, 40 pounds and sub-40 pounds. And they have short draws, which makes it easier to get high FOC. And they're shooting arrows that are above 30% FOC. Wow. And they're shooting through uh, just all sorts of big animals, uh, even on up to Elon, which are considerably bigger than moose. And mm-hmm. uh, we had one with a an Elon uh, quartering away shot with uh, five feet of penetration Jeez. with a 38-pound bow. Wow. Again, we've had we've had them take Cape Buffalo, you know, with bows that are in the forty pound range, and even recurves uh, that were uh, in in the fifty pound, right at fifty pounds, I think forty eight, something like that. Uh, so, so, regardless yeah. of draw length and pull and uh, draw weight, these factors are are obtainable. Yeah, these actually the the two groups of hunters that benefit the very most from the factors are the people that hunt the really big animals. Yep. You know, the buffalo, hippo, giraffe, elephant, and the people that shoot light draw weight bows with short draws. Mm-hmm. They will gain the most benefit, but everybody benefits from it. If you're shooting a 70-pound bow with a 29 or 30-inch draw, you still get that tripling of penetration that just like anybody else would. It's just harder for you to get that high FOC. But most anyone, if they work at it, can get up in that 25, 26%. And that gives you a lot of penetration increase. I'm, I'm at 17. Still working at it. <laughs> I'm, at, I'm, at, I'm at 21% on my, on my traditional ball. So. Well, you're you're getting up there. You'll you'll yeah. pick up some some decent penetration increase. Mm-hmm. 
So the next the next factor here is uh, mechan factor number four is uh, mechanical advantage. Yes, the broadhead is is a simple machine, and that multiplies the work. You by physics definition of work, you can get out of the amount of force that your arrow carries. Now, when that arrow leaves the bow, it's going to have a set amount of force. Mm -hmm. Because you can only store so much in that bow. Now, by increasing arrow weight, things like you can get small increases in the amount of force that's absorbed from the bow. But you're not going to get any big jumps. So whatever you launch that arrow at, that's the force you've got to work with. Right. The higher the mechanical advantage, the more work or more useful work that's going to be available to you. Now, our useful work here is penetrating the animal. Right. And the degree of gain is going to vary uh, depending on which broadheads you compare. Uh, but broadhead mechanical advantage has a more pronounced influence on the outcome penetration of a perfect flying structurally secure error than any other factor except extreme FOC. Okay. So it, it is a very, very important factor. And you'll you'll see some testing on that written up again from this year's testing when, so, when we get that out. Okay. So in essence the longer broadheads are we're better off with longer broadheads than shorter broadheads. Yes, longer there in relation to width. Uh, yep. And, and the other thing, and we'll talk about it a little more later, so, that you need to think about with uh, mechanical advantage is that the bevel, the edge bevel of your broadhead is an inclined plane. It also has a mechanical advantage. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about it when we get down to to uh, edge bevels. Okay. So, Dr. Ashby, when you're talking about the mechanical advantage and the longer broadheads, are you referring to, like, the 3-to-1 ratio? Well, the 3-to-1 the three three to is, is, has been used in terminology, mm -hmm. I guess, ever since Howard Hill started talking about 3-to-1. Okay. Uh, okay. As far as I know, he was the first one. But uh, when we were doing the heavy bone threshold testing, I have to jump around and get some of this stuff in. <laughs> the the broadhead mechanical advantage that we found would give a hundred percent heavy bone breaching rate when the error mass was at the heavy bone threshold was okay. two point six. So okay. I would say two point six is probably the critical. And that didn't matter type of edge bevel, anything else. That's just just what it took to get through the bone. We'll cover it when we get to number 12. Gotcha. <laughs> then, next on the list is uh, shaft, number five, shaft diameter. Yep. Shaft diameter to ferrule uh, diameter ratio. Yep. Okay. If you've got a shaft that is larger than the broadhead's ferrule, then you're going to lose some of your penetration. That's just going to happen because you're going to have increased drag on the shaft. Right. Now, where we found the gain point 
was when you had a shaft that was at least 5% smaller than the broadhead spheral diameter. So that you, you need that, that step down to be 5%. As we looked at smaller shafts, we didn't see a, a, a gain. So this 5% seems to be an important factor in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it may be strictly that drag factor. Uh, one of the things I've often thought about, not sure about though, uh, and one of the reasons we do our, our setup testing in that 30 minute period of time is because the blood is still in liquid state. It hasn't coagulated. And mm-hmm. you've had blood on the handle of a knife when you're dressing an animal. It's right. slick. So when we're shooting an animal, we're shooting into this blood-suffused environment that helps lubricate the shaft. And I think this 5% may represent a place where we get, get good, what's known as capillary flow, of the liquid blood along the shaft. Hmm. I don't know that that's true. That's just theory. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that's, the, that's the, the only way that I can figure out that why it seemed to be 5% and then didn't matter if it was 10 or 12%. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like oil on a, on two metal surfaces that are, are rubbing together. There's a yeah, there's got yeah, to be clearance it, there for it. Yep, and it it, uh, it draws the, the uh, reduces the friction. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I think that may be what it is, but I don't know that for a fact. That is just the only thing that seems to make sense. But anyway, when you get a, uh, if you're looking at a shaft that's larger compared to a shaft that is 5% smaller than the broadhead spherule, you're looking at about a 40% difference in tissue penetration. Gee, that's, that's crazy. You, you gain about 10% right. going down to that smaller one, but you yeah. lose about 30% right. when you go to that bigger one. And again, I think I think it's the blood. I think there's no yep. place for the blood to flow between the shaft and the tissue. Mm-hmm. And that's why it increases the friction so much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you start adding all this stuff up, and it's, you're right. I mean, this is, yeah, this is, this is some really, really good information, Doc. Well, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. We worked hard on it for a long time, yeah. and we're still working on it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I think number six is what um, fascinates me the most, and what I've really been working towards, and that's uh, arrow arrow mass. Uh, arrow mass does increase the efficiency. Uh, we talked about the little bit of gain you're going to get, and, and off of your bow. Even though the bow has that set amount, with a light arrow, uh, your bow is going to be noisier. And it's going to vibrate. It's going to have more hand shot. Well, this is all wasted energy. That All that energy comes from that stored energy of the bow. And by using the heavier arrow, you're giving it a longer period of time for the bowstring to transfer energy to the arrow. And that's why the heavy arrow makes your boat shoot quieter. 
it'll have less head shock, less vibration. Uh, so that's why the greater air mass uh, has more efficiency. It, it literally absorbs uh, more of the energy of the bow. But that's not where the big gain comes in penetration. The, the gain comes from momentum. And momentum is just mass times velocity. And not all momentum is the same. You can't take a light arrow shooting faster and a heavy arrow shooting slower and get the same amount of penetration in animals. It, it won't work. The big reason is velocity decreases during penetration. The mass of the arrow remains constant. Yeah. So it's like the rolling car and the rolling semi-truck. It's that old argument that the heavy right. arrow slows down. Now, a lot of people say, oh, the lighter arrow is shooting faster. So in a given amount of time, it's going to travel further. But that overlooks one thing. When you double the velocity, the resistance to penetration goes up by a factor of four. Okay. So you're getting, the faster you get the air, the more resistance to penetration you're going to have. So if you, you know, increase the velocity three times, you'd have nine times the resistance. Interesting. Yeah. So, so there are definite advantages. Uh, and any time you've got everything else equal, but one is heavier than the other. You got the same broadhead, same outside shaft diameter. Everything's the same, but one's heavier than the other. In tissues, the heavier one will always penetrate deeper. Now you won't necessarily get that in like a foam target. You'll get some of it, but foam target is designed to create drag on the shaft, right. and it goes up almost on a when you graph it. The resistance goes up almost on a straight line. So you can get very, very close to the same penetration those. Because we've tested just about every test medium you can, hoping to find something that we could use instead of animals. But right. nothing correlates. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> number excuse me, number seven on the list is blade edge finish. Yes. A smooth they, a beard shaving sharp, honed and strapped, stropped, excuse me, mm -hmm. my voice is about to go, mm. uh, works the best. <laughs> we, we're pretty bad sinus problems down here. <laughs> uh, what we did when we were, we were looking at edge finish was that we took a series of arrows, a whole bunch of them, different weights, different broadhead designs, three blades, four blades, two blades, single bevels, double bevels, all sorts of stuff. And we start out, we, we sharpened them with a hill-type serration. And we shot them into seven thicknesses of fresh buffalo hide and measured the penetration. Then we resharpened all of them with the smoothest file-sharpened edge we could get. 
and shot them again, measured the penetration. And then we honed them and stropped them as sharp as we could get the, the head. Mm-hmm. And we shot all of them again and measured the penetration. And what we found is that with we compared each era back to itself so that we could look at the gain with each era. And it was uniform with every era set up. The hill-type serration penetrated the least. Okay. And then the smoothly file-sharpened came in next. And then the honed and stropped came in first. Now, the honed and stropped on the average showed a 26% advantage in penetration over the file sharpened, and a 60% plus advantage over the hill-type serrations. So a huge difference. Now, this is going through very fibrous tissue, but you're going to be shooting through very fibrous tissue every time you shoot an animal. The hide, plus a lot of the connective tissue, is extreme, all the cartilages. So it's going to be fairly fibrous. And so you're going to have this loading up. And one of the things we found with the, uh, particularly the hill-type serrations, was that these fibers would load the blade to the point that you couldn't touch your finger on the blade. Mm. So it, it's a, a definite disadvantage. But there are there is another huge advantage to using that honed and dropped edge. But you also want it to be as thin and as smooth as possible. But now it can't be so thin that you lose structural integrity. Right, right. And that has to do with the clotting cascade. So when you cut a blood vessel, the disruption of the cells that make up the inner lining of the wall of the blood vessel releases a protein called prothrombin. And the prothrombin reacts with the blood plasma to create an enzyme called thrombin. Now, thrombin is going to catalyze the conversion of fibrinogen into fibrin. And it's the fibrin that will attach to tissue tags at the edge of the cut, sealing the cut to stop or reduce the hemorrhaging, which is what we don't want. Right. But that thinnest, sharpest, smoothest edge also damages few of the cells lining the inner wall of the blood vessel, which reduces the uh, prothrombin freeze, which reduces the thrombin, which reduces the fibrinogen, and there are fewer tissue tags at the side of the cut for the fibrin to attach to. So there's less clotting, and you're, you're going to get a better, you're going to get more blood or blood release. Exactly. Blood. Yeah. It's going yeah, okay. to bleed more freely and longer. Okay. That's awesome. So there's a lot of advantage in there. And uh, there are some uh, other things that, that come in. Uh, we probably won't put that under when we talk about the, the uh, mechanical advantage of the edge down there. Mm-hmm. Let me get into the single bevels and so forth. 
So, oh, so I guess we slide on the shaft profile. Yeah, before before we get there, um, I mean, this is a good chance. If you need to take a break, grab grab some water or something, we we can do that. It's well, hang on, I'll, I got the water right here. Okay. Uh, that'll be a little better for a minute or two. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a uh, this is really really impressive stuff here. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, well, it's all actually simple physics. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but to be able to to take the time, the energy, the cost to you, and just to be able to put it all, and you you have to have a different type of mind than most most bow hunters as well. You're an exploratory person. You're you're somebody that's got to know why compared to yeah, you know, I do. I I'm uh, yeah, you know, and I've dealt with. Uh, you know, uh, terminal ballistics for a long time. I, like I said, mm-hmm. I grew up shooting and discussing them, and then I, I did a lot of testing for uh, Barnes bullets on terminal performance. Of their bullets too, so I've, okay. I've worked with that end of terminal ballistics. Hmm. All right, that let's. Uh, that was seven. Let's, yep, shaft profile is uh, factor number eight. Yep. Your uh, taper shaft, I'm talking about a constant taper, uh, it shows the best penetration. And it gives you about an 8% penetration gain over a parallel shaft and about 15% over a barrel taper shaft. Now, other than traditional archers, you're not going to see any barrel taper shafts nowadays. Uh-huh. But at one time, they were actually quite common. Uh, so basically, you're looking now at parallel shafts versus uh, a tapered shaft. And so you're looking at about, you know, that 7% difference or uh, 8% differential between the uh, tapered shaft and the parallel shaft. Mm. Um, if it, it's, there's not a lot of tapered shafts available. There are a few that are parallel for a ways back and then taper. Uh, and have not really done any testing on those. So I don't know what that, that's newer since I was testing. Okay. Uh, if I had to give up one factor, it would be the shaft profile and shoot a parallel shaft. Now, the taper shaft does have some advantages because it is generally, if it, if it has a uniform diameter hole in the middle, then it's going to be thicker up at the front, and it's going to be stronger, and it's going to give you a little higher FOC. So those are advantages that you pick up with a tapered shaft. But uh, tapered shafts are are difficult to make and and have good uniformity with them. Mm. And uh, you can, that 8% penetration gain is about what you get between when we're looking at FOC, between 25 and 26%, you've got about an 8% penetration gain. So if you can take a, a, a parallel shaft and, and get up into the you know, 26% FOC, then you would have about the same thing you've got at 25% FOC with a tapered shaft. Okay. And... Uh, like I said, if, if I had to give up any one factor, uh, which often you have to, 
to be able to build the air set if you need. Yeah. Uh, that would be the one I would give up. Yeah, and, and that's going to be probably pretty common for most people because, like you said, it's, it's going to be re- it's really hard to find. Probably yeah, and they're expensive when you find them. <laughs> or any. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Of the of the yeah those shafts. Yep. All right. So number number nine is uh, broadhead arrow profile. Yep. You you basically do not want any rough or irregular surfaces anywhere along the arrow system. The only place you want anything is that step down from broadhead ferrule to shaft. Okay. Other than that, you're looking for sleek. You want the the ferrule to taper as long as it possibly can towards the tip of the arrow. Mm-hmm. You give it the lowest profile you can or the highest mechanical advantage. Um, the effect on uh, of uh, the arrow and uh, broadhead silhouette profile is most pronounced during bone penetration. Okay. Even little bitty lumps or bumps on your arrow or broadhead can significantly reduce your penetration when you're going through bone. Mm-hmm. So it's really important there. And a, a lot of broadheads have these Lumps, bumps, rough places on them. Uh, these unnecessary upsweep tapers and things like that mm-hmm. uh, that are going to cause problems uh, penetrating bone. So that's the only critical thing about it is you want as few of those ups and down lumps and bumps as you can get. Okay. That makes sense. Then the next one you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier the type of the type of edge bevel number ten. Yes. Now, what we do in testing this is this is known as outcome driven testing. We shoot multiple, multiple, multiple shots, and what you're looking at is you know what can happen. How often does it really happen? Under what circumstances does it happen? And then finally, why does it happen? Mm-hmm. So it, it's a really, really, really unusual thing in outcome-driven testing to find something that gives you a 100% outcome. But when broadheads that are identical in all aspects except for the edge bevel are tested side-by-side on identical error setups. Single bevel versions demonstrate a sizable penetration increase in 100% of the cases that involve bone impact. Now, the data is very suggestive that it also gives you an advantage in soft tissue. So, there, but, but to come out with anything, this 100% frequency. Uh, this is something that you want to take note of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm not going to be trading my single bevels in anytime. That's for that's for dang sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, now single bevel broadheads also have a lot of other advantages, particularly in soft tissue hits. They have thinner edges. Mm-hmm. That gives them a higher 
edge bevel mechanical advantage. The, they also rotate. So think of the path of an era like a double bevel where all rotation stops on impact and it punches right straight through the animal. And then think of making that same wound channel but rotating the cutting edges. You're going to have a much longer cut path. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. You also get uh, an advantage because blood vessels, capillaries, and all go all sorts of directions. But mathematically, when you have the rotating head going through this random arrangement of vessels all the way down to the capillaries, you cut more of the vessels on a bias. So think of a tube. Instead of cutting a tube square straight across, you cut it at an angle. That gives you a much bigger hole so that the blood yeah. can come out much more freely. Yeah, that makes sense. It, I, I think, so, too, I, it, and correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm just kind of thinking about this. Like One of the things you said earlier is the arrow is always in flight, no matter if it's in the air or if it's in the, the, the flesh of the animal. It's yep, or in, or in the dirt. Till it comes to stop, it's flying. Right. So if it's continuing its spin, it has to be helping with everything with the arrow because it's, it's, there was no abrupt change in rotation or anything like that when it hit the flesh. If Is that correct? Or yeah, in, that's correct. Yeah, that's okay. why it's important to match mm-hmm. your fletching to the rotational direction of the uh, edge bevel on a, on a single bevel head. Mm-hmm. You okay. want the direction in the, in the, same, the rotation in the same direction. Otherwise, the arrow's got to come to a stop and actually reverse direction rotation when it gets That's tissue. a lot of energy. Yep. Okay. Yep. And another advantage in soft tissues is that you get starburst cuts in mobile tissues. Now, lung tissues are mobile to some degree, and very often you'll see lung tissue mushed up by the single bevel heads. And the that seems to be more pronounced in the longer, narrower heads than in the shorter, wider single bevel heads. Uh, but when you make a, a bad shot, like a gut shot, mm-hmm. the intestines are very mobile, and they will literally wind up around that head. And you will come out with little tiny nicks and cuts as much as five inches away from the path that the arrow passed through. And we observe those by, you know, when we're doing the dissections, taking uh, big 150cc syringes full of dye and injecting them into the intestines and looking for where they where they come out. You only have just a few seconds to be able to, to look at the cuts and the dyes all over everything. But you can see the little cuts all around there, said as much as five inches away from the path of the arrow. Because and it pulled it in, it pulled it in on the rotation of the arrow. It is, it is. They're mobile and they literally wind up around the broadhead. And as the broadhead goes through, it cuts little nicks here and there. Hmm. And one other thing about the higher edge bevel mechanical advantage. And this goes back to our clotted cascade, too. The higher a broadhead's edge bevel mechanical advantage, the deeper it can slice into tissue or a vessel. Mm 
when you have the same pressure between the tissue and the edge of the broadhead. Or you can look at it the other way. It can cut as deep with less pressure between the blood vessel and the edge of the broadhead. Because it does more work, it's thinner, higher mechanical advantage. So that's another very distinct advantage in all tissues of the single bevel head. Of course, like we started out talking about, their biggest advantage is in a bone. They, the rotational force splits the bone. And uh, that takes up a lot less of your error force than having to push straight through. Now, we never had, and still do not have, a bone, a heavy bone that was split by a double bevel broadhead. We've had some smashed, right, but not massive splits like we get with the single bevels. Wow. And we hope to be able to uh, do some more investigation into that. We've uh, The foundation bought a quite expensive uh, high-speed camera, true high-speed camera. Mm. And uh, we're going to try to Right now, we're having trouble getting bones because uh, with the current economy in the country, they're being sold in grocery stores at absorbent high prices for soup bones. <laughs> and uh, once we can get a good source of bones, uh, we're going to try to take a look at uh, just how deep uh, single bevel broadheads of different profiles have mm-hmm. to penetrate the bone before it splits the bone. Yeah. Okay. That'd be, that'd be is, it, is it material uh, strength, or is it just at this point, from what you can tell, it's just the the, the double bevel and the thickness, and or what what is it? Does it does the tip spray? What 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 exactly do you think at this point that you can tell? The, you mean as to what actually splits the bone? Yeah. What? Why? Okay. Is it, it is the rotation. Way? It, it's a, you know, you, you've got a bevel on one side, no bevel on the other. So mm-hmm. you get pressure of the tissue you penetrate through, in this case bone, against that bevel, which causes the broadhead to rotate. That's what induces yeah. the rotation. So right. the okay. thicker the bone and the wider your uh, bevel, the more torque you're going to have. Of course, angle of the bevel has something to do with that too. Uh, but so, if you're as you're penetrating through the bone, the deeper you penetrate, the more force that is placed on that broadhead. And bones and and uh, orthopedic surgeons will 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 tell you this: if you don't use a single bevel chisel trying to cut a bone because you'll split the bone instead of cut the bone, which is not what they want to happen. But it right, is right. what we want to happen. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. Okay, there's that, really, that makes sense. Yeah, there's really no downside anywhere so, to using a single bevel head on any type of head. In all actuality, you're probably on, on a double bevel. You're not going to find... 
um, it, you're not going to be able to, to get it to be able to probably break bone then or split bone like that. Yeah, no matter how much, much, how much, much you want it. Much yeah. more difficult okay. for it to get through bone. And uh, I, I think uh, one of the things that, that showed up in uh, this year's testing that Rob did, uh, now he hunted his, all these animals with his bow before they put them, you know, before they set them up and did the uh, the broadhead testing. Right. On uh, his hunting shot, on one of the Cape Buffalo he shot, he hit the ball joint of the humerus, which is uh, about five and a half inches thick. <laughs> and he penetrated completely through it and split it into multiple pieces. Oh, my Lord. That's crazy. It, it, broke, it broke the buffalo down. It broke his shoulder. Right. Yeah. And as far as I know, that's uh, that's the first time that's that's ever been done uh, to go right through the ball joint of a buffalo. Uh, yeah, that so that he, is a massive bit of bone. Yeah. So he was using a single bevel. Do you know anything else about yeah, arrow wing? Yeah. Okay. Uh, eleven hundred and some odd grains. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, he had built up that arrow because he was hoping to be able to. Uh, to shoot a uh, hippo, but he, they they didn't come through with the hippo permit. Mm. Okay, so he didn't get to do the hippo. That'll hopefully be another trip sometime. <laughs> yeah, that's right. great. Number, number eleven on this list is uh, is tip design. Yeah, now tip design it has a number of important features to it, and uh, we did the testing on this. We used seven different tip designs uh, uh, on a, on a two-blade broadhead. And uh, we looked at, at not only penetration of the bone, but skip angle, the tendency for that style of tip to skid off the bone. Now, hands down, the, the best performing one uh, was the tattoo tip, and uh, it had the best outcome penetration in bone, and it averaged about 110% better than the worst performer, and 27.5% better than the second best performer, which was a round one, round tip design. Right, okay. And it, it showed the best or the lowest tendency to skip off of the bone. Now, a needle tip, a true needle tip, might do as well not skidding off a bone if you could get it to remain structurally intact. Right. Okay. But we were never able to do that. Now, when we were doing skip angling stuff, we did uh, we did a lot of uh, oh, the bone breaker tips, pro cars, all of that type of stuff. And okay. uh, most of those uh, do not do very well. They they have terrible skip angles. Hmm. Yep. So uh, it's pretty. That's another one of those things that is pretty clear in there is that uh, that tanto tip is is incredibly strong and still has the the 
sharpness of the tip enough to bite into the bone. Okay. So before before we move on to number 12, I, I have to ask, because a lot of this conversation has been um, with regards to, to bone, and there, there's an important reason behind all this. But the question I had was, of, of the 627 big game animals that you shot, how many of them stood perfectly still for you? Uh, very few. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if they're rainy. <laughs> but, you know, that's uh, that's that's always been a big contention of mine. It, you know, back when I started archery, you know, this is going back in the 50s, uh, you know, we shot at moving targets all the time. Okay. And I, I still, uh, I prefer to shoot a moving animal. They don't react as fast. Right, okay. And I, it amazes me. Now, I watch these people on these videos, and a deer will come by, and they'll grunt or whistle or do something to get the dog and deer stop and alert him. And then the they last thing I want. And then they draw their bow on those videos. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. It, it, it makes no sense. But, no. but animals do uh, react less if they're moving. Now, if you ever want to get a real fast lesson in that, you, you start hunting uh, impala. Because mm -hmm. impala are incredibly quick to react. Right. Okay. But you can you can get one walking, and and he hardly moves. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that animal's just as big walking as he is standing still. It's just developing the skill of, of shooting animals like that. Well, the, I mean, the, the other point, too, here is, and I think I either read somewhere, too, that you did a lot of stalking. Um, Almost all my animals are stalking, yeah. You're, you're, you're normally, you're not going to have that perfect shot. and You rarely have that perfect yeah. shot. And even with the weekend warrior, you know, do we really want to pass up a straight-on 10-yard shot? Well, most people won't. They they might think they would to let animals right in front of them. Yeah. And, yeah. and they just can't resist. I, I've seen it uh, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. And the thing to do is shoot an arrow setup that's capable of doing that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I wanted to get that. I wanted to get that out of the way because I could just, I could just hear, hear the chatter. Well, all you do is talk about bone. I'm a perfect shot. Well, you might be, but the the game is moving right. So. <laughs> well, this uh, this was Rob's first trip to real Africa. He'd made several trips and hunted in South Africa, which is uh, usually hunting out of a concrete blind at a water hole or a feeder, uh -huh. and. Okay. Uh, he had never hunted wild Africa before, and his assessment was he's never going back to hunt South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> it was that good, huh? Yeah. It was that good. <laughs> All right, so it's a whole different world. Oh, I bet. Yep. I bet it is. I bet it is. So let's talk about this twelve. This this number twelve arrow mass above heavy bone threshold. Yep. This is the most misunderstood and misquoted thing out of out of all the study ever. And and I see all the time that 
Oh, Ashby says you got to have 650 grains to hunt a whitetail. No. That doesn't have anything to do with that. All we're looking at was what does it take to breach a heavy bone? Right. And what we found is that with every error, didn't matter what broadhead, every error setup we tried, when you get up around 650 grains, there is a jump in the frequency of getting through a heavy bone. And sometimes down below that, you know, it, it, very light errors sometimes get through a heavy bone. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time they don't. With a poor bone-performing broadhead, that jump between below the threshold and above the threshold might be from 8% to 12%. But when we got up into higher mechanical advantage broadheads, and it's worked out it was 2.6 mechanical advantage on grade. When we hit 650 grains, or within a few grains of 650, with the various broadheads, the frequency of going through the heavy bone went to 100%, as long as the arrow was structurally attacked. Sure. And that's basically all we're looking at there. Now, the reason... it, it Changing the FOC doesn't affect it, but having very high FOC will greatly increase your post-breaching penetration. But as far as actually penetrating the bone, it has zero effect. And the reason it's weight-related is just what we were talking about before. When you hit that bone, this is the reactive armor. There's going to be some movement at wherever that bone is attached to the skeleton. One of the purposes of the skeleton is to protect the body. It's not just to hold you up. So this is part of the protective mechanism of the skeletal system. So when you hit that bone, the bone is going to move. When it reaches the limit of movement, there's going to be some flexion of that bone. And you have to overcome both that movement and the flexion before you can even start to penetrate the bone. So the big thing is to have the air push on the bone long enough to breach the bone. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when we I say some light air is going to break a bone, if you get stress on a bone, the animal's in just the right position, and you hit it in just the right place, you could probably break it with very little force. That's why people jumping off of rocks sometimes land wrong and break a bone. Right. You know, it, 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 if you put enough stress on that bone, something's going to break. So you're always going to have light errors that break bones, but you're not going to have it with a frequency that you can rely upon. And that's the key to it all. Yep. You have to be able to rely, rely on it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna do a quick plug for um, AshbyBowHunting.org, which is the foundation website, and I'll put that in the show notes uh, for this. But you have um, an arrow weight chart where it grades out based on total arrow weight, right? Uh, and also, too, you have a spine chart yep. uh, 
on, on here as well. So I, I, I'm, that's all I'm going to mention, and I want to just encourage our listeners to go to go look at that. Uh, and this is based off of everything we just discussed here and your 27-plus years of uh, study. Right. And, and, and encourage them all when they get through. Go over to the donate page. We live off of donations. There you go. Without that, we don't buy equipment. We don't, you know. I, I can't ask these other guys the foundation to pay for it out of their pocket like I did out of mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they right. donate all their time for free. No one gets a salary. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's, this has been in, instrumental in, in, in my walk over the last, I started taking on this journey. This will be my fourth year. Um, and as I, as I mentioned to Todd before, it's a, it's a step-by-step process that has taken me four, four years to kind of get to a point that I'm comfortable with sharpening, with doing everything that I need to do. And now I feel like it probably won't happen this year, but now I feel like now I can start working towards that. I'm around 600 right now toward that 650 number. Um, I mean, we're, we're closing in on hunting season, so I don't want to be tinkering too much. Oh, it. no, not, not before. It's too close now. Yeah. <laughs> Wait till after season. Start then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like I like my arrow setup. I, I hit the majority of the 12 um, with, but the number one, the structural integrity, um, that's probably the number one thing on the list, but it's probably the thing where there's the – the, the chink in my armor a little bit because I'm, I'm using um, a, a heavy, well-made broadhead, but I'm using the standard uh, insert on the front. So yep. it's an aluminum. It's an aluminum insert. That's something I'm going to put some more attention. That to. that is a definite yeah. point. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So I'm hitting all the other things pretty well, though. I, I like where I'm at. Besides that, so that I got got to work on that. <laughs> well. It, it, sure. it takes time. You know, I didn't come up with it overnight. Yeah. It was a long, a long building process for me. But, uh, you know, coming from the background I did of traditional archery, uh, I always shot heavy arrows. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I shot uh, forged woods way back in the 60s, and was compressed cedar arrows. And, uh, and actually with a built-in weight forward, because they're progressively... Uh, progressively compressed but uh, i didn't know that (laughs) (laughs) you didn't know you were helping yourself right i had no idea right (laughs) so uh dr ashby uh we we like to wrap up the show just asking our our guests to to share a story and you you've shared a couple but troy mentioned that you have a philosophy of cigarettes that stems from a story Oh Lord, I don't even know what that would be either. <laughs> that was, He'd have to jar my memory. He, he, I got lots of stories <laughs> about rolling up in somebody rolling up in trucks with an AK forty-seven while hunting rhinos. Oh yeah, that yeah that uh, was the way I got through a lot of Africa. You uh, <laughs> you go along the road and there will be uh, there will be a checkpoint. You know it could be a government checkpoint. It could be some rebel group checkpoint. And uh, I used to, to buy cartons of cigarettes and put them under the, under the seat, hide them. Uh-huh. And I'd put uh, one open pack out, you know, with, with uh, 
like six cigarettes in it. Yeah. And uh, when you pull up there, very commonly the question is, what'd you bring me today? Uh, uh, now, you're going to give them something, or you're either not going to get through, or you're going to be there for hours trying to get through. So I would look around and I'd say, geez. So look, I got I got six cigarettes left. So I, let me give you four of them. They'll give me two to get to where I get some more. And they're happy as a lark. <laughs> you gave them awesome. something, they're tickled yeah. to death. But if you That's had great. a carton out there, they would want, you know, nine packs out of the carton. Right, right. <laughs> That's, that's a good. That's good thinking right there. Good negotiation. But you can you can travel all over Africa doing that in in the more primitive countries. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, Doctor Ashby, I just first of all, I want to thank you so much for um for spending some time with us tonight and going over all these factors. It's been eye opening to me, and um to be able to just spend uh an hour and, and just listening to a, a, a person that's, that's uh, done so much for our community, our, the bull hunting community is an honor. And uh, first, I, another thing I learned about you was you're in air force. I want to thank you for your, your uh, service to our country. I want, and I want to thank you for um, the, the service that you did with the eye care was, was um, like, like you said, some of the Indian reservations and, and, and stuff like that. Um, just your life's work and, and the, the 27 to 30 years that you put into this study to to help all of us as bow hunters is, is an amazing legacy, sir. And I want to thank you so much for for what you've done for for all of us and in, in, in the time that you spent with us tonight. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Yes, sir. I, I second that too, Doctor Ashby. We appreciate your time, and uh, we'll let you get get back to uh, your your hot Texas weather. Ah. <laughs> uh. Setting under the air conditioner. <laughs> but what I am going to do is I'm going to go up and fix a nice stiff wild turkey and treat my throat. <laughs> there you go. Good man. <laughs> thank you so much. We appreciate you. Okay. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. John, I don't know about you, but that was that was a pretty exciting uh, conversation. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ed Ashby is a pretty cool dude. The facts in the in the the study that that he did here is, I mean, this is his life's work. This is his legacy. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah. The the fact that he self funded it, so it wouldn't be, it couldn't be perceived as being um, skewed one way or the other. To me, that's that's huge. You know, coming from a higher education man, a doctor, um, he, he's probably put some some real thought and some some um, you know has been able to prove out some of the percentages that he stated in in the you know in the discussion. Um, it, it, to me, I, I can't understand why someone wouldn't at you know at least take the top four, take the top five mm-hmm. um, factors of the twelve and try to to make sure that you at least have some of those factors, you know, and, you know, see what's the most important to you. But I think stru- number one is structural integrity. That's got to yep. be in everybody's, everybody's got to build a strong, solid arrow, you, you know, yep. that's and perfect arrow flight. Everybody preaches that. Everybody knows that. 
Right. When you start going down, you start going down the list. It, it's really until you get down to nine, ten, eleven, twelve, those t- kind of things. All things that we should all be striving for. Yeah, I think I think the stru- structural integrity, perfect arrow flight, and uh, mass. Definitely, yeah, mass, arrow mass. Yeah. And blade, blade edge finish. That's those are I don't know the five or six things that I'm really really focusing on mm-hmm. um, in, in my setup and, and working towards. I think I think what the coolest thing about this that's very relatable is that this started out of a need. Like he wanted to he he asked the question why early on. If you guys picked up on it. He was out there hunting and wasn't able to recover arrows or recover uh, the game he, he was chasing um, with the arrow setup that he had, and he wanted to know why. And that started him on this, just like just like me. I lost several several uh, or had no blood trail. I was able to recover them, luckily, um, but had no blood trail, and I, I wanted to know why. And that's kind of how I got started on my journey. Uh, and, and here we are 30 years later, this information is still being studied through the foundation. People are carrying on that torch, people like Troy, people like, uh, the president Nielsen, I think his name, his last name is Nielsen. Um, mm-hmm. they're all, they're all taking this on. So I, I want to, I want to ask, like, if there's anybody that has been on the fence, like from shifting from, you know, a speed setup to a heavier setup. Uh, was this eye opening to you? Do you still feel like um, going heavy is, is not a, a, the right option? Um, I asked Dr. Ashby if he had seen any data that kind of went against, um, or more, I should say, that supported the heavier or the lighter setup. And he's like, there is none. So if any of you listening uh, know of any data out there, let's have a conversation about it. Because uh, right now, this this is uh, what uh, this entire uh, process, this arrow heavy arrow process, uh, is 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 something I'll be continuing to work on and use through the rest of my hunting career. I'm just that that convinced of it. Yeah, and, and the thing is, like I've been around for a while. I've been, you know, this is gonna be my 40th season or whatever. And when we first started, we shot you know 2117s, which that was a 600 grain arrow just from being, you know, 30 inches long and 21, a 21, 17. And we had hundred, 125 grain tips on the front or whatever. So you, yep. you're talking, we were always shooting 650 grain arrow, arrows. And no, yeah, it, it was not FOC. It was not FOC, but the mass was there. And that was what, one of the factors is the mass. And we blew yep. through deer like they were nothing. We always blew through deer. It wasn't until we got into carbon arrows and we started going with these huge, mechanical arrows that we would even see uh, you know 15 deer a week on outdoor channel that didn't have a a complete pass through yep so it's so it's so to even have them that that um you don't need this or you wouldn't want this is is ridiculous it's ridiculous you need the bottom hole (laughs) you you need the bottom hole to be successful all the time you know, if you are shooting and don't, you're not striving for the bottom hole, the exit hole, then you're really not, you're not doing the service to the critters. You're really not. You might be doing service to a broadhead company that you're being loyal to, you know, but you're not doing any service to those critters or the sport. We need to make sure that we have a bottom, a, 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 uh, an exit hole 
on our animal. Yeah. You have to build for that. You have yep. to do that. I agree one hundred percent. So I agree. Yeah, I, yeah. Like like I said, I I've been down the speed thing for many years, and luckily I've been one of those people that's got a thirty inch draw. Um, so I've shot a thirty something inch arrow. You know, I've shot big mechanical broadheads. Well, not the biggest ones, but I, you know. Um, and I shot the ones that flip over, and they've done excellent for me. I've shot through shoulder blades. I've you know, and I said that to Troy in the in the in the Troy episodes. You know, however, there's a certain point where you know I had to start dropping down my my bow poundage because of my shoulders and and right. stuff like that. So now I'm getting into a point where now I'm really on the edge with it. You know, the the, the thing about the speed is. But like you're gonna be able to build an arrow that beats the deer's reaction, and that's just simply not true. And we've known that since the forties. You you may be able to get a quarter of an inch difference in drop on that deer, but you're fooling yourself to think that. Right. That, that that's simply not physics in, in animal reaction. It's not gonna happen. So build yeah. the arrow. Build the arrow for. That bottom hole. Build the arrow for the exit hole. You you should always do that. You have no idea what that critter's going to do by the time the arrow gets there. And by the yeah. time the arrow gets through it, you don't have any idea what's going to happen. So build your arrow and build your setup for the bottom hole, the, the exit hole. You have to. Yeah, no, and I agree. And the data supports that, right? Whether whether you're shooting uh, 10 yards or long-distance shots, um, the data supports heavy arrow regardless it's absolutely so with with that being said if people um have comments you think we're uh we're lying to you you think that the good doctor's lying to you, you think that troy was lying to you in the episodes before that that's your opinion you're allowed to have opinion that's that's the good thing about america <laughs> we can all have opinions but um if this is something that you've taken out of out of this you know the troy episodes um, and and the the Doctor Ashby episodes and something that that you've gained out of it. Just remember that the Ashby Bowhunting Foundation they run on donations. If you have been able to take anything out of the study and you're able to, to donate to something, go on their website and and and, and uh, give a donation if if it's possible. Pay pay them back for the information that that, that they've um, put together for you. And uh, again. We're not sponsored by them, but they're doing um, legacy work with, with this with this foundation, and um, to be able to keep that keep that going by just giving you know whatever you could possibly give, greatly be appreciated. And the the, the fellow bow hunters that come out behind us, after us, they're gonna they're gonna uh, appreciate your donation as well. Amen. Yeah. So that that would be that would be the fourth. We normally ask you guys to do three things, right? Share share the show, give it a rating, and go read Genesis twenty seven three. This time we're going to ask you to go give a donation. You can do a, a annual, a monthly, or a one time donation at any at any amount. So um, I think with that, good show. Let us know your thoughts. Leave a comment below. Reach out to us on uh, Instagram. And again, I will repeat: share the show, give us a rating. And go read Genesis 27.3. Until next time, we'll see y'all. We're out. Later. Seek wilderness. wilderness.